to the Indy Matters podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Welcome to this podcast, where we're coming to you for the first time from Reno. We can't tell you where in Reno. It's an undisclosed location. Each week, we'll discuss matters of importance that we covered and look ahead to what's coming in the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site that can be found at thenevadaindependent.com. I'm joined tonight by two of our Carson City reporters, Riley Snyder and Megan Messerly. They're as tired as I am after covering the end of the session. We're going to talk about that, what they did, what they didn't do, and what's coming next for the Nevada Independent. Riley, Megan, welcome. Hey, John. Hey, John. Thanks for being here. Let's talk about uh, what has happened since we last podcasted. Is that a word, Riley, podcasted? I believe so, and if not, it is. It is not. No, yeah. It is, exactly. We just invented it. All right. So it's been about, what, 10 days or so since since we did. We, we skipped because of the what was going on. But really, the session looked like it was winding down, and then suddenly, out of nowhere, and I'll let you start this time, Megan, they decided to have a hearing on something that had been talked about the whole session as being the key issue, education savings accounts, school choice. What happened from there? Right. So we knew going into the session, this was something everyone was talking about. We had talked to, you know, all these Republican senators and Republican assembly members at the beginning of the session, asking them, would you support a budget that doesn't have education savings accounts? And that was the big discussion is what would happen with ESAs. And then, you know, 110 some days later, we had not had any hearing on ESAs. The bill, um, there was a bill originally introduced by Republican Senator Scott Hammond. That bill died without a hearing. The governor had a same ver- same bill, but different bill number introduced and that bill just sat there it was exempted from deadlines and there was no movement on it everyone knew that something had to happen by the end of the session it was sort of the the elephant in the room um, and so we finally had a hearing on education savings accounts and um, there were sort of behind the behind the scenes negotiations happening leading up to it you know we sort of knew where things were at that proposals had been been offered and, and that this conversation was going on but that was sort of the first public forum in which we actually got to hear about the bill and and hear some of people's concerns Concerns with it on the record, at least. And then Riley, uh, at that there was this well choreographed uh, uh, episode at that hearing in which Justin Watkins Hawkins, you mean? Is that the ha- Hawkins, <laughs> yes. Uh, the, 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 who, who was that? Maggie Carrollton who got his name wrong? Uh, Joyce Woodhouse. Joyce Joy- Woodhouse got his mm-hmm. name got his name uh, wrong. Uh, uh, is he the one who looks like the miner from the 1840s? He is the 1840s miner. <laughs> That's yeah. what I thought. And so he gets up there and he's a pro ESA Democrat. He's kind of the sacrificial lamb. And what did he do, Riley? So. Justin Watkins wasn't really involved in any of these behind-the-scenes negotiations Megan was talking about. There was kind of a working group of Republicans and Democrats trying to figure out a way, how can we figure out a deal on this program, get some Democratic priorities done uh, that the governor will sign, and like basically come up with the endgame deal to send home. So they sent Justin Watkins up there with this Democratic amendment to the bill, which contained a lot of things that they had sort of previously agreed upon beforehand. There was a sliding scale. There was uh, means testing for the ESA program, so kids with disabilities, kids on the lower, with parents who were making um, less income would get more money under the program. So Republicans were kind of shocked because they thought this was all behind the scenes and we were going to wait until the time was right and we could just kind of process everything um, together. It was kind of clear, like, even at the hearing, uh, Jason Frierson, who's the Assembly Speaker, I think, said, you know, you're presenting this, but I'm the one who's negotiating for my caucus. So any questions, come talk to me. So he was definitely the the quote unquote sacrificial lamb. He's a freshman Democrat. It's his first session. Um, and he presented this and it 
I, it went over okay. Like the Democrats thought it went fine. They wanted to have the hearing on this at some point. Of course, you had the teachers union come up and say vouchers will end public education as we know it. Uh, the Republicans we talked to after the hearing said like this was not helpful at all. We don't feel like we can trust them. We got kind of um, surprised by this. We found out about the hearing like three hours before it happened, which was a nice precursor to what happened on Thursday. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say history sort of repeats itself with what we saw happen is Republicans were sort of upset that this hearing was called on short notice. They were like, hey, we thought we were going to wait to have the hearing until we'd come to this agreement. Democrats said, no, we're just going to move ahead. Um, so on Thursday, everything came to a head again when, um, so again, behind the scenes negotiations had been continuing and they were nearing a compromise, or at least Republicans thought they were nearing a compromise. They're working on this compromise amendment on ESA, on what ESAs would look like. It was sort of more matter of the other details, you know, what Democrats would get in exchange, what other pieces were a part of that deal. And that was all still in the works. Um, and then uh, Democrats uh, started, they, they brought um, this pot tax bill up for a vote. Um, and so at, at the same time, the night before, unbeknownst to the Republicans at the time, Democrats had brought back this sort of compromise proposal to their caucus. It went over all right with the Assembly caucus. You know, people weren't happy with it, but, you know, they were willing to sort of bite the bullet and, you know, do it for Speaker Frierson um, and vote for EF ESAs if that's what it took, sort of, you know, trusting his leadership. And on the other side in the Senate, um, uh, Senate Majority Leader Aaron Ford brought it back to his caucus. And he, you know, he said he wasn't selling it to his caucus. He just sort of presented it to them. It was sort of like, here's what's on the table, you know, take it for what you will. And it didn't go over very well in that caucus at all. And so then that took us to the following day, there was a vote on this critical pot tax and sort of the everyone's understanding was that this pot tax wasn't going to come up for a vote until ESAs were done, that Republicans would vote for the pot tax, which, need, which needed two thirds support to pass. Um, but they were only going to do that if they had a deal on ESAs. And that deal hadn't been reached and Democrats brought it to the floor for a vote and that bill died. And that was sort of the beginning of all this unraveling at the well, end. Let's let's go back just a second so people understand because all everything you've talked about in the chronology, there was this somewhat, this is how people look on these things. There's these two different narratives that built and you alluded to it. The Republicans say, we had a deal. The governor says, we had a deal. The Democrats backed up. The Democrats say, we never really had a deal. We just promised we'd go back to, these are the leaders, Frierson and Ford, would go back to our caucuses. As you mentioned, the assembly, they probably could have gotten uh, the seven or so votes I think they needed uh, for for, for uh, the compromise in the Senate. They needed a couple, but uh, I, 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 the, the, the ferocity with which they reacted in that caucus. But the key, I think, point is, and the reason there's such different narratives is that Ben Keefer, the, the, the big negotiator for the Republicans on the Senate side, and Paul Anderson, who may be the most fervent supporter of ESAs in the entire legislature, the Assembly Minority Leader, were forming an amendment overnight based on this so-called deal, which the governor thought he had made with Ford and Frierson. $45 million, three quarters of the $60 million, and with some of the other elements that Riley talked about, sliding scale, means tested, tax credits, uh, loan perhaps from, from, from the general fund, to water it down as much as possible, even though they were gonna get what they wanted. And then, <clears throat> after this, while the, they were working on this amendment, the Democrats were plotting what you just suggested, and they didn't even tell the governor about it till right before the floor session, that they were gonna not just vote on this pot tax, but they had it orchestrated and so it went down once and then what happened Riley um, after that went down um, they so brought it back for reconsideration mm -hmm. and Senator Ford did and then they gave these speeches that were clearly pre-written right to attack the Republicans mm -hmm. for hating kids and veterans and the rest of it yeah right? I forgot the last week has basically been a month yeah, it's, so it's a, it's a blur yeah <laughs> a lot of yeah. news stories crammed into eight yeah. days so um, 
the pot tax Megan was talking about was something proposed by the governor. It's 10% extra on top of this 15% that was in the ballot question, question two that passed in 2016. It was supposed to go straight to the distributed school account, which is the K through 12 budget it has to pass first. So as soon as the marijuana tax vote failed, they held a very quick uh, parliamentary rules and procedure committee meeting and they approved an amendment taking the money that had been earmarked for this ESA program and putting it into the distributed school account. The whole constitutional question over ESAs came because they were taking money out of the DSA, the K through 12 budget account, and using that to fund um, ESAs. So they basically just took all the money out of the budget and put it towards K through 12. And then that quickly got approved because of course they have a two to one majority in that committee. And they gave all these four speeches about how we're here for education. Um, Republicans said, you guys are not negotiating in faith. We've said since January that we're not going to vote for a budget that doesn't have ESAs. So we're going to vote against the budget. So they brought up all the budget bills. Um, there's five, like one has to do with state worker pay, one's appropriations, one's the K through 12 budget. And four of them passed on party lines. Uh, but the fifth one was the construction budget, which um, due to a quirk in property tax law now required a two thirds uh, majority vote. So, so that, they needed Republican votes for people who don't understand. Yeah, it's a 12 to nine split in the so, Senate. So they needed two Republicans to vote for it to get it to pass. And this, you call it construction projects. It's, mm -hmm. it, 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 these are all kinds of different projects, right? E each satisfying different constituencies. There's buildings at, at, at UNLV and, and UNR, the big engineering building yeah. at, at, at UNR was in at least half of the funding for it was there's veterans home funding there's mental health facilities and so there's like you know seven pre-written campaign mailers in the in that bill if you vote against it and the republicans all voted against it and that's when the impasse came that that had to be solved in the final days right, right. well yeah and that actually came i think as a surprise even talking to um assembly minority leader paul anderson because that that budget bill the capital improvement project budget bill in the past three sessions has been marked as a simple majority vote so it was sort of un unknown to a lot of people that this would actually actually require a two-thirds vote. It turns out it was an error and legal had never put the language on those three bills that it was true in the past that it had been a two-thirds vote. And it actually passed the last three sessions by a two-thirds vote, even though it had been marked as a simple majority. And Usually so, not controversial. Exactly. Yeah. And so it came as a shock to a lot of people. But like you mentioned, it was an impasse because Republicans were saying, you know, we said no ESAs, no budget. We're not going to vote on this until we get ESAs. Um, and so then that was that lasted a couple of couple of days until um, finally re Republicans did start to agree and they sort of reached this final compromise, which is what we saw unfold over the last couple of days, um, which involved increased funding to the Opportunity Scholarship Program, which some have compared to ESAs. It shares some elements of it, but it's a program that goes primarily to low and middle income students. It's um, the tax credit structure that they wanted to use for ESAs exists in the Opportunity Scholarship, but it's an extra $20 million toward that program. So that was part of the deal. Um, and it sort of all came together in the final days. And Republicans said that they would vote for um, the CIP budget bill sort of in exchange for that. Some Republicans. Some Republicans. Some Republicans. Yes. In the Senate, yeah. There were three in the Senate. Yeah, five. Uh, Actually, there might have been there were five on the tax vote in the assembly. I think there were seven on the CIP bill. But they the got the, they got to the two thirds in both they houses. Did. Yeah. Uh, and this let, let's just talk about this for a second because uh, the, the whole issue the Democrats did a press conference uh, in between this in which they had veterans come up as I mentioned talk about both veterans in the legislature and and uh, I think they had a veteran holding a flag so the TV cameras would have that on there saying the Republicans hate veterans the Republicans as you mentioned talk about not negotiating in good faith and so this and then they had the government 
governor, who I think is the key to this whole thing, I think the Republicans thought that maybe he would back the Republicans in the legislature, backstop them by vetoing the budget if it didn't have ESAs in it, which he clearly sent the message he was not going to do, right? Yeah, and you know, we talked with him yesterday, and Steve Sebelius, the Review Journal columnist and TV star, I guess, of local Nevada <laughs> politics television, asked the governor, you know, Michael Roberson, the Senate, uh, Republican leader said, no, ESA, no budget in January. Why didn't you ever take that stance? And he said, you know, I didn't want to dig myself in. Funding the state, keeping everything running on time is more important to me. Obviously, ESAs were a big fight, and he, that was where he put a lot of his political capital this session. But going home on time, making sure that, uh, and just on the construction budget part, like there's a lot of state bonding that went into that, and to miss bond payments and just to threaten the state's credit rating. Like I, I, one of the interesting things between Thursday when everything blew up and Sunday when it all kind of got resolved was everyone was kind of calm. I think there was sort of a, an understanding that some kind of deal would be made where that construction budget, the bond payments would be made. And like we wouldn't, you know, pull a tea party and like throw the government careening off a cliff and who knows what happens after that. Um, so th that was, uh, I think, in the back of everyone's mind as over the last couple of days. Uh, and, and we all wrote in our stories that the two Republicans they were obviously going to go after uh, were to vote for this were Ben Kiefer in the Senate and mm -hmm. Heidi Ganser. And I think, Megan, you could talk a little bit about this. Mm -hmm. This goes to the heart of a citizen legislature mm -hmm. in terms of what Heidi Ganser's uh, day job is mm -hmm. uh, and why people thought that she was going to vote for this all along. Sure, yeah. So this is sort of a question that came up earlier in the session, but she actually works for the Nevada System of Higher Education. You know, her, her job is being in higher education. And so people, you know, thought there was no way she would vote against funding for UNR. You know, that's that's her day job. And so it would seem sort of absurd that she would. And at the same time, you know, we talked about there's a lot of these northern Nevada projects, the northern Nevada veterans home. There's a, a DMV projects at UNR. It's just really hard to vote against those projects, you know, living up here. <laughs> Exactly, and that's why I think they thought that they would get those two. Let, let's talk for a second, because you, you mentioned it, and I saw you mentioned Michael Roberson. Uh, his political uh, hand, Jeremy Hughes, is still on Twitter today saying, oh, these foolish Democrats are crowing, but they actually voted for vouchers. I know we're going to do a piece in the Nevada Independent. I hope you'll look for it, everybody listening, showing what the difference is. But there's really a big difference, is, is there not, guys, between $60 million to create an entirely new program in the state outside of the distributive school account, the K through 12 budget for education savings accounts and the opportunity scholarships, which already exist. Who wants to give just a basic, uh, I, I understand why Jeremy Hughes and, 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 and uh, Paul Anderson assistant on the, on the assembly side are saying, oh, they, we got vouchers, we got vouchers. Uh, but what's the difference? I mean, I think one of the big things, and we heard this a lot from Democrats, is just the scope of also what ESA, who ESAs go to, right? ESAs are a universal program. You know, Democrats somewhere in the middle of negotiations had wanted to put a cap on it, and Republicans weren't going to have that. They wanted this An universal, cap. exactly. They wanted to have universal school choice through ESAs, um, and putting an income cap wouldn't make it universal. You know, they wanted everyone to have something. In the final version of the deal, you know, if you were the top tier of income, you know, if you were um, you know, casino billionaire, you know, billionaire casino owner, Sheldon Adelson, you want to send your kids, you can get $600, you know, probably not going to go through all that trouble if you're making that much money to go get $600 to send your kids to private school, but everyone can get something. Um, under opportunity scholarships, there is an actual income cap and it really does only go to low and middle income students. Um, it's a set amount of money. Um, it's, it's a very small program and now this will sort of expand it and sort of expand who we can go to. 
but it is different in that it's it's only targeting certain students, you know, and it's not this sort of universal broad-based program that Republicans wanted. Yeah, the income cap is 300% of the federal poverty yep. level, so you're not going to get like people with $200,000 incomes applying for this. It's more money. I think it's like $7,600 mm-hmm. per student. I think like 450 or so were able to do it over the last session. This is something that was created in 2015 by the Republican legislature. It's paid for by tax credits, so businesses essentially give money to these scholarship organizations that got formed who then dole out the scholarships, they in turn get a tax credit against their payroll tax. What's a fun wrinkle here is that opportunity scholarships, you don't have to disclose if you're giving the money. So if the Sands or MGM or Caesars wants to get a $20 million tax break, they can just donate to the scholarship organization. A bunch of kids get to go to private school or whatever school they want to for um, thanks to that money and then they they don't have to pay $20 million in their, their modified business tax. So it's interesting that they went that way. It was kind of the same discussion with ESAs, but because this entire deal, the $20 million increase, which again is a one-time thing, um, came together in like less than 48 hours. We didn't really get a lot of chance to, to, to dive into it, but that was one thing I had looked into in the, the post-2015 session um, kind of waves. And one thing I thought interesting was that you don't have to disclose if you're, you're getting this tax credit. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously opportunity scholarships are designed for lower income, uh, uh, maybe you might say some middle income people, many fewer than would be affected by ESAs, and, and it's a completely different structure. It, it, is, it is to some extent private money going for public education, but it, 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 it's, it's not an ongoing uh, uh, allocation, as you mentioned. The e- I still don't understand why the Republicans wouldn't say, I mean, if they'd gotten $5 million or $10 million when does government unravel a program that has started and yet they were so fixed on getting so much money in it and I think Sandoval's refusal to veto the budget uh, uh, really really uh, uh, just undermined their entire uh, negotiating stance. We're going to get to some of the other elements uh, of what happened in the last week, some of the craziness uh, with Uber and Lyft and then a gaming confidentiality bill that materialized out of a completely out of whole cloth. State workers suddenly got in more of a raise and speaking of anonymous donations I want to talk about that but first Megan let's talk about uh, another a really astounding turn of events on, on the issue that you've covered which is, is this pharmaceutical transparency bill uh, which had just gotten passed I think out of both houses the last time uh, we did this podcast. The governor's office had worked with Ivana Cancella, the Democratic senator who would push this the entire time. Mike Wilden, who had long been the head of the uh, Health and Human Services Department, now his chief of staff, and Richard Whitley, uh, they had, seemed to be in favor uh, of this. It seemed like a foregone conclusion that Sandoval was going to sign this. Then what happened? Yeah, so on Friday, like you mentioned, everything was was going really well, and we were sort of waiting and waiting to see when the governor would sign SB 265, and we kept checking with the governor's office, and um, it had bills at at that time had this five-day window in which they needed to be signed, and so Friday was the drop-dead deadline, and all these negotiations are continuing on at the same time, and so, you know, there there was a question of, you know, whether there would be a trade for ESAs for the governor signing this bill. Ultimately, that did not happen, and the governor actually vetoed the bill on Friday night, and he sent out this veto message, you know, making a lot of the same arguments that the pharmaceutical industry has been making all along against this bill, um, you know, saying that it would cause stockpiling of drugs. There's this 90-day provision in uh, Senator Kinsella's bill that would require manufacturers to give the state a heads up about 90 days before any planned price increases, and pharmaceutical companies said, you know, hey, if, if this happens, you know, there's going to be all these middlemen and, and different warehousing 
people and suppliers who are just going to stockpile the drugs when they know a price increase is going to happen, and then they're going to make a lot of money off of it. Um, so that's one of the concerns that he mentioned in there. He also said that the legislation only tackles uh, pharmaceutical manufacturers. It doesn't tackle this um, other entity involved in the drug pricing process. They're known as uh, pharmacy benefit managers, and they're sort of the go-between between pharmaceutical manufacturers, or between, yeah, between um, the pharmacies and between insurers, and they're the ones that figure out, you know, how everything's going to work in the middle, you know, what, what prices are going to look like, and they figure out, you know, from working with um, manufacturers, what rebates are going to look like, how much of those rebates are going to be passed on to insurers. So they're sort of involved in, in the middle of all this complicated drug pricing process. Um, and so there was another bill uh, sponsored by uh, Republican Senator Michael Roberson that kind of got introduced at the end to sort of deal with some of these concerns. Republican senators had brought up these concerns that Senator <clears throat> Kinsella's bill only tackled manufacturers. So he threw this in at the end. That was part of the deal in order for the, the bill to actually move forward on the Senate side. Anyways, all that to say that Sandoval mentioned that in his veto message, saying that he was concerned that the legislation only addressed manufacturers and didn't address these pharmacy benefit managers. He thought it was too narrow. He thought it was unproven. And, you know, how do we really know that this is going to help drug prices? It just seems like it's going to make matters worse. And that was that. And so that was on Friday. And then what day are we on now? So it was on Monday, Sunday? One of those days. Um, over the weekend. <laughs> over the weekend, yeah. It was, I, I think it was Sunday night, very late Sunday night, early Monday morning that this happened. Um, so actually, Senator Cancella's bill was actually amended into Senator Roberson's pharmacy benefit manager bill. Um, this happened very quickly. His bill was voted out of committee. There was this amendment. Um, the Rules Committee in the Senate, they sort of just rush up to the front of the Senate and they amend these bills really fast and only reporters get to go and figure out what's going on and what amendment just got tacked onto this bill. Um, and it turned out that Senator Cancella's bill, almost all of the elements except for that 90-day um, price, price increase notification window um, was amended into that bill and that bill ended up moving forward so that it got amended uh, it came up for a vote on the Senate floor it passed 19 to 2 only two Republicans voting against it um, the following day on Monday it went over to the assembly side uh, it didn't fare as well there it uh, got a party line vote but it, it didn't really matter because it got sent to the governor's desk and the governor said uh, that if it got to his desk he plans to sign it and it's it's on his way there it's on and, its way there. and we're gonna have a piece I think soon uh, showing people uh, uh, what the real differences are between what the governor said he would not accept and how much of that, if anything, made it into the final bill. So I hope people take a, take a look for that. Uh, 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 Megan has covered this issue uh, from the beginning and probably knows more about pharmacy benefit managers than uh, uh, most people in, in the world. Too much. Now, way can't too get much. those can't get those hours back. <laughs> exactly. So let's talk about a few other crazy stuff. Crazy stuff happens at the end. Uh, so let's talk about a few things. Riley, you followed this the entire. Uh, session. There have been efforts, the taxi companies, you and Megan have done this Follow the Money series, which I hope people will go take a look at. We've linked to all of them now in one story uh, on the site. And the taxi companies gave a lot of money to Democrats. Theoretically, uh, they were hoping that Democrats would take control and undo some of the legislation enabling Uber and Lyft last time. So there was a lot of talk about this. There was this crazy thing that came up, I don't know, halfway through the session where they were going to try to force customers to wait 15 minutes before they uh, could actually get an Uber ride. That disappeared pretty quickly. But then during the last week, a lot of stuff happened. Yeah, so all the stuff you mentioned happened. It was kind of like bubbling, similar to ESAs throughout the entire session, but not a lot of like public movement. 
And it all came through this bill, SB226, which is now the most toxic bill number of all time. I heard like one assembly member say, I'm not voting for that for the next three sessions. I don't care what the bill does. Um, but basically the idea was right now, if you're a driver for Uber or Lyft, you have to get a business license to do business. The problem is there's not a lot of checking. Like people aren't going and seeing like Uber drivers can kind of blend in with normal people. They can take the sticker off. They can drive normal. So the idea behind this bill was that Uber and Lyft would self-police themselves. They'd have to require drivers to prove within six months that they have a business license. If not, they'd have to basically stop them from driving for them. So Uber and Lyft weren't exactly happy, but they were able to live with it because it was existing in state law. It's just something that wasn't being complied with. The bill got through the process. It passed out with a few Republican no's in the Senate. Then it got to the Assembly. And then late, uh, I think last Friday, there was an amendment crafted on that would have required essentially the Nevada Transportation Authority, the regulator that oversees uh, ride-sharing companies like Uber and Lyft, um, to Im impose the same kind of background checks and restrictions that taxi drivers currently get, which is a lot more than they currently have. Uh, the Transportation Authority said it would cost them like $3.5 million to be able to hire the staff to do all this. You'd have to get special stickers. You have to get cars inspected. You have to do all the stuff for drivers. So Uber and Lyft freaked out. And that was because that was a big thing. We should tell people for context, right? That was a big deal in 2015. The whole issue of background checks that Uber and Lyft managed to kill. And this was something that they that the taxi folks really wanted, and they brought that back now, which is where we got to, right? Yeah, and Uber and Lyft have always said, you know, we're not like traditional taxi companies. They wanted their own section in state law when they got approved in 2015. Um, you know, it's the idea that like if you're a college student, you can drive people around for a couple of hours on a Friday and make a couple of bucks as opposed to having to go through the full background check process and do the sort of professional career taxi drivers have to do. Um, so that, that, that was always a huge thing. Um, the bill came up for a hearing on Monday. Uh, no policy discussion, only the financial discussion, according to the, the chairwoman, because it, they did have the $3.5 million cost to it that the Transportation Authority said it would have. And then it just kind of sat there. Nothing happened for about a week. Um, Uber and Lyft sent out these like emails saying like, we're going to leave the state of this bill passes, contact your legislators, a lot of angry tweets, emails, Facebook messages, calls. Um, I think like Uber had 20,000 or 30,000 people sign this petition. Lyft had a similar number sign their petition. So the bill became super toxic. They couldn't do anything with it. It just kind of was left to die in committee. Um, and then more shenanigans happened. So Kelvin Atkinson, who introduced this bill, SB 226 to begin with, reintroduced another bill, SB 554, which did the same thing the bill did, but before it got amended into this um, stuff that Uber and Lyft hated, they processed it through the Senate really quickly. It came to the assembly on Monday, which was the last day. And then bizarrely at like 10 o'clock at night, two hours before they end and they can't pass any bills, they can't pass any laws um, until 2019, the Assembly Ways and Means Committee came in, had a nice sit down hearing. They brought in Senator Atkinson who talked about the bill. They had Uber and Lyft people come. They had the Secretary of State's office testify. So they had like a normal-ish kind of hearing on it. And in kind of a last minute wrinkle, the Assembly Speaker, Jason Frierson, moved to uh, pass the bill, but with this kind of a surprise amendment that I don't think a lot of people knew about, which was reducing this six month period where Uber and Lyft drivers have to get a business license to three. Um, Republicans were really opposed to that. They said we were fine with it as is. It seemed like you guys had come to a compromise and we can't support this. And the sneaky Nevada legislature passed the bill out without the amendment. They approved it in committee, but they never adopted it on the floor. Got it out of the assembly, got it out of the Senate, and sent it to the governor's desk with still the six months in. So there was like this kind of um, amendment that was adopted but didn't really go anywhere. Um, that a lot of people kind of got confused about because we haven't really operated on a lot of sleep and a lot of things were happening at 10 and 11 o'clock on Monday. 
So that yeah, that was kind of um, I guess the sop to the taxi companies, but it got out with I think a, a version that Uber and Lyft can live with, and they're not going to freak out and do the whole "we're going to leave the state if this bill passes" type thing. Because it's essentially only all all that was passed is this licensing, and then when they have to prove that they have a, a state business license, right? None of the background check stuff or, or any of the other. Yeah, stuff no fifteen there. minute wait for your no, Uber. None of that stuff. Unless you live in Carson City, but that's more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different story for a different podcast. So yeah, so that is just a classic window into the total craziness that goes on at the end and how they jam that through. Another one, Megan, is uh, there's something that most people listening may not know what it is. It's called a conference committee in which if the two houses can't reach an agreement, there's six legislators appointed, three from each house. And so there's a conference committee on a bill. Uh, and then suddenly that bill is completely taken away and another bill is put in there that has to do with a controversial issue, at least tangentially, that we've covered here. What happened there? Yeah, so that was, Riley was actually, at, got the got the amendment and he comes in and he shows it to me and we're both like, what is this? Because it was on air finders, right? Air finders, air parents. Like what you do if you like find Yeah, if you state. find someone estates. And so we were like, ah, you know, should we go? And we're like, nah, we should go, you know. I was trying to figure out why it took them 120 days to figure out. Right. <laughs> You know, air, law, exactly. Like. Um, so we're like, yeah, we, you know, we should go. And so Riley went, and he comes back with this amendment that entirely deletes this air finder law and replaces it with this um, confidentiality provision for uh, gaming companies. So this has been an issue all session um, with some of the goings on, which we've talked about on this podcast before, with Attorney General Adam Laxalt and Gaming Control Board Chairman A.G. Burnett, the secret recording Bur Burnett made of Laxalt, feeling like there was some sort of undue influence that Laxalt was maybe pressuring him to intercede in this lawsuit, um, which involved confidentiality, right? So that's why this is relevant is because it's all about gaming confidentiality and the, the confidentiality that exists between Nevada's gaming regulators and the gaming licensees, so all the casino companies. And that's really important to the state because everyone says Nevada's the gold standard of gaming. It's very important for the gaming industry to have integrity, for people to feel like everything is well-regulated. You know, all the all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed. Um, and some of that has sort of come into question, I think, during a lot of those conversations about, you know, you know, what is confidential? You know, is is the integrity of Nevada's gaming industry there? You know, there, there were some statements from uh, Senate Republican leader Michael Roberson, you know, casting doubt on on the gaming regulator. And so there were just a lot of questions coming um, during that period of time. And that was about a month or so ago, maybe. Um, and so now this bill comes up um, with these confidentiality provisions, basically putting what already exists in regulation for the gaming regulators into law. Um, there's some questions about, you know, if it's actually going to do anything, if it's, you know, too broad. Um, but that sort of came at the 11th hour, maybe the 10th hour last night. I would say 10th <laughs> hour because it was literally three hours before yeah. they were officially done. Yep. And like to just, irregardless of policy, to just have this massive policy right. change with three hours to go no notice like we had tried to go to this conference committee because we tried to go to all of them yeah because you know we, we all really personally care about air finders and what happened uh -huh. with that law <laughs> felt like it was scheduled for four then it was scheduled for five then it was scheduled yeah. for six then we ran and got dinner and then right. like we had missed it, came it back yeah <laughs> got the copy of the amendment and it was like what are you what guys is doing happening? there's three hours left well and to top it off right this was all pre-planned you know a few minutes later after you tweeted out the amendment we got this statement in our inboxes a joint statement from the governor and, and all four legislative leaders all four of them in one statement saying this is so important for our state well, we're going to do this quickly, didn't they? yes they did they, they suddenly found out this was happening <laughs> right. and, and put out a put out a release about it um so that just shows you the the shenanigans that can happen at the very end of the session and it's interesting <laughs> what was interesting to me about this is that as you mentioned it just essentially codifies 
what, what is in the regulations. A.G. Burnett has said he supports this, the gaming companies do. Some lawyers, and you've probably talked to some too, say the language is may, may be too broad and they can keep stuff confidential uh, that they shouldn't. Uh, but you can see it being spun both ways. You can see the Democrats saying, oh, look, we had to do this because of what Adam Laxalt tried to do. We had to make this clear. And the Republicans saying, oh, look, Adam Laxalt was right. This is just about confidentiality when really I think this was so there's nothing like this could ever happen again in the gaming industry's mind and probably in A.G. Burnett's uh, mind as well. A couple other things that happened. Uh, uh, suddenly they found some money uh, at the end. And who did they give it to, Riley? State workers there. Yeah, getting a 6% pay bump over the next two years. So this was another last minute amendment. It was a bill that had to do with criminal procedure that for some reason stuck around till day 120. And the amendment totally gutted the bill and added a 1% COLA, the cost of living adjustment, in each year of the two-year budget, on top of the 2% they were getting in each year from the governor's budget. So this was just extra money, um, the economic forum where the state, a, a group of nonpartisan economists, like kind of projects how much money we'll have to spend, and that's what the legislature has to base it on. So we had an extra $90 million or so. So we've just had like... Um, one Republican called it a gravy train, which I thought was kind of funny. But, you know, it's like half a million dollars for a playground at, at the Springs Preserve. Um, and this was just $28 million, I think, is the final price tag for the this. So state workers, 6% pay bump, you know, recession's over, I guess, finally. Yeah, I guess I guess that's right. It's still, even after all these years, you guys, it amazes me that they can do with those two bills what they did, which is take a bill, as you said, it just hung around, and no one knows what air finders or, or this criminal procedure bill, just so they could completely remove the contents of that bill and put in something that is not germane to it at all. Uh, I would say there ought to be a law against that, but we're talking about the people who make those laws <laughs> who, are do, who are doing this stuff, yeah. so that's on likely. So finally, maybe, maybe you could talk about this. There's also this issue, and the governor called a press conference and crowed about this, and I guess put up a check with post-it notes or something on it to cover up who was donating to the University of Nevada, Las Vegas Medical School. What happened there? Right. So that was another thing that we found out about on Monday morning um, from Assembly uh, Republican leader Paul Anderson, that there was going to be this $25 million uh, to UNLV's medical school, and there was a matching uh, donor grant. And so Sandoval shows this you know, check with everything, you know, all the relevant details, all, you know, post-it noted out. So you can't tell, you know, who, who it's from. Um, None of you charged up to try to rip the post-it notes <laughs> rip off? It off immediately. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> our photographer yeah. took a picture and I'm like, I think there's a Y in there. Yeah, like, yeah. maybe <laughs> trying to piece it together. Um, yeah, so that's another thing that came at the, the very last minute. We don't know who the donor was. I know there's some speculation about, you know, why did this donor want to keep their name secret? Did they have other interests before the legislature? Was it really just because, you know, they didn't want the emphasis to be on them? They wanted to be behind the scenes. And there are always those questions, I think, whenever, you know, we hear about another anonymous donor, you know, coming out. <laughs> it could just be pure ph philanthropy and a low-profile person who doesn't want their name out there. But I think it's a legitimate question to ask, right? right. $25 million, anonymous donation. At the end of the session, there's still a ton of bills that the governor uh, has to sign or veto, right? And we don't know who this is. It could be anybody, uh, right? Well, it can't be anybody. Uh, $25 million. <laughs> $25 million to spare. Yeah, yeah. But I, mean, that, I will admit on the podcast it was not me, John, just if you were wondering. It may have been me. It may have been no. me. <laughs> we're going we're gonna, to uh, administer polygraphs. We'll, we'll, let you, we'll let you know after this podcast. All right, so well, we, we don't want to go on any more about the legislature since we're all I exhausted. Let, let me just wrap this up. Uh, by talking, uh, uh, and maybe I'm going to put both of you on the spot here, see if you can uh, come up with this. Uh, and Megan, this is your first 
full time uh, covering the session. Uh, of everything that you saw in, in, in the 120 days, what was what, where you're going to look back and say that was the best thing that I saw? That was the best moment of the legislature. However, you define best, most fun to to watch, uh, uh, spectacular, the choreography, the performances, and I'm not even referring to Third House, our satire of the legislature, uh, which went over very well. What was the best moment? Uh, well, I think the you know just being a journalist, the fun thing. Well, maybe there are two fun things. Um, <laughs> two fun things in journalism, <laughs> two folks. Fun you things. heard it wow. here first. And that's it. Two fun things um, in Nothing days, else. Everything else means. is. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I just think from like a political theater perspective, you know, we, we just had two really, you know, intense hearings. I think the Laxalt Burnett hearing and then the ESA hearing, you know, these were two very choreographed hearings. And you sort of sit through these, you know, boring sort of policy, you know, support, opposition, neutral. And, and you know, that's how most bills go through. Um, but those were just two very unusual. And you can tell you could tell everything, you know, how planned it was. Um, so that those were fun moments. But then I guess the other thing for me that was just really rewarding is I really like sort of the wonky policy details and going through all that. It's not like a moment, but that's another thing that I found very rewarding. Like I, it does not bother me to sit and stare at a bill, you know, an 80 page bill and try to figure out what it does. So it's probably a good thing being in this profession. And, and that's <laughs> one of the signatures that we came up with, I think, for the Nevada Independent during the session and people appreciated that. What about you, Riley? All right. This is the part where I talk about energy for about 10 minutes. Oh so <laughs> turn off oh now. Goodness, drink your coffee. Oh. <laughs> Um, but seriously, uh, energy policy was a big issue this session. We have this energy deregulation ballot measure that's coming up in 2018. Um, during this floor debate on the 40% renewable portfolio standard bill, um, which would raise our energy production uh, minimums from renewable energy to 40% by 2030, Senator Pat Spearman said, like, we've had 28 energy bills this session. Like, there have been a huge number of things that are changing in energy policy. It's just, it's really interesting to me, like, the whole thing with battery te battery technology, Rooftop solar is coming back in the form of AB 405, uh, which the governor said he would sign. It reinstates favorable net metering rates for rooftop solar customers. There's a lot of like of the planning stuff. There's a lot more transparency now between what the PUC does and what Envy Energy does. That the public can now come and see. So there's like a ton of energy related things that will continue to happen throughout the interim. There's this 25 member or 30 member, however many member um, committee led by Lieutenant Governor Mark Hutchinson that's trying to figure out what to do with energy choice once it passes. But they passed a lot of interesting things, and it's going to be like one of the reasons Republicans ended up opposing this RPS bill was because there's just been so much stuff passed out this session, whether it's community solar. So there's a, a lot of like nerdy energy things that I get to read and you know figure out and write about over the next year and a half. And you and Michelle Rendell's, uh, uh, who is not here tonight, did, did a very deep piece about energy policy, which I, I think a lot of people, even some of the lobbyists told me they learned from. People can go on our site and see that. And just so people know, Riley, it, it, the, the RPS bill, the, the, the changing renewable portfolio standards, as we do this podcast uh, on Tuesday, is it Tuesday? The days all run together for me. I think it's, it's Tuesday. Tuesday. It is Tuesday. Uh, uh, that still is on the governor's desk. And there's still some question about whether or not he's going to sign that, right? Yeah, so that's an inter inter interesting one because the Nevada Resort Association, this casino trade group, put out an amendment. There was kind of the idea of raising the RPS or doing it through the IRP process, integrated resource planning, where uh, utilities come to the Public Utilities Commission and say, like, this is what we want to do in terms of energy generation over the next three years. So their amendment had to do with that. The legislature ended up going with just a higher RPS. The governor and his people who are working on this bill were very concerned about the effects of question three, energy deregulation, how all this is going to play together. I've heard from Republicans who said, like, you know, we're generally okay with the idea. We want to do solar. We don't want to be dependent on 75% natural gas forever. Let's do it in 2019. Let's not try and put the card in front of the horse. So 
at this point, I would be really surprised, I guess, if the governor was to end up signing that just because I've heard so much skepticism from both him and his office. But, you know, the never say never. There's a lot of public pressure, and it's hard to veto a bill that says we want to make Nevada the leader in clean energy and be one of the top five or ten states in terms of RPS standards. Seems to me, Riley, I'm just guessing here, that if he does veto it, and I think there's a decent chance that he does veto it, we will see the phrase well-intentioned and laudable goals at the beginning of the veto message. Sandoval specializes yeah. in that, doesn't he? His not? heart was in the right place, <laughs> but... <laughs> exactly. All right, let, let's, just, let's just wrap this up by saying uh, it's very hard. None of these sessions end you know, that prettily, as I've talked about many times over the years, and you were both there in the hurly-burly of it at the end. Uh, let me start with you, Megan, and, and, and then Riley, you can close it out. What were people saying at, at the end? What, what, what was what was going to be the takeaway? Even though it may be different two, three, four months from now, were people saying, wow, this was a, a great ending, or wow, I can't wait to get out of here, or this was, uh, what, what was the chatter in the hallways at, at, at the end? Yeah, I think the weird thing, especially at the end, when sort of the ESA deal fell apart was, you know, wow, sort of what do we do here for the last 120 days? You know, Democrats had been talking, you know, really big about all these things they wanted to do, you know, especially the minimum wage, paid sick leave, um, these really progressive things they wanted to get done, which, you know, the governor was probably never going to sign, maybe a really low minimum wage increase, but certainly not 15, not 12. He has one on um, his desk, we should say, which he said he's going to veto. Yes, yeah, um, SB 106, yeah, is there right now. And so I think it was sort of this, you know, Republicans didn't get ESAs, Democrats didn't get what they wanted, these progressive reforms, sort of everyone's going to go home with nothing. And, you know, I think once there was sort of that final deal at the end, things picked up again. But for a couple of days, it was just sort of, you know, what are we doing here? We're just waiting for the CIP budget to pass. We're just waiting for things to end. Especially, yeah, like the last day. I mean, like all the major issues had kind of been resolved on Sunday. We kind of knew how the, the story was going to end. I think what people forget about, and you said like we were waiting for, you know, nothing to happen, but the governor did end up signing 400, 500 bills into law. There's a lot of different policy changes that happened, but for me, because I, I was here, you know, my, my grizzled gray beard shows that I was here <laughs> in 2015, and it was in many ways like the hangover session from that. Like Republicans said, we just want to keep in place what we passed in 2015, keep the policies in place as much as possible. Obviously, ESAs were part of that and were not part of this session, but a lot of things like Zoom schools, victory schools, weighted funding, a lot of the things that they had um, done in 2015 stayed in place and like not, not all the changes were made. So from from their perspective, not rocking the boat was the goal and the boat was not rocked too much in 2017. I think that's a great point because what the governor, I think his main goal too this session was to not let any of the so-called reforms that he got passed in exchange for that tax increase get rolled back. And, and you mentioned the Zoom and Victory Schools, the, the so-called Achievement School District. That was a big deal throughout the session. They were going to try to change that. And that eventually just uh, got entombed in a committee, right? It, ne it never got out. Am I correct? Yeah, it passed that? out of the Senate. There were some changes to make them mm -hmm. A-plus schools and right. do a couple of other modifications, but I think coming into Sunday and Monday, there was just an understanding that we're just going to let it die away. I want to let everyone know that we're, that we're going to be doing more. Yes, a few more stories about the legislature, postmortems. Uh, uh, what, did, what did the governor really get? What education policy changes were made? Uh, I mentioned the, 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 the pharmaceutical bill. We're going, to, we're going to do a piece on that and what was in the governor's veto message versus what was in, uh, is in the bill that he's going to sign and, and, and a few more. Uh, and then it's going to be a whole new world for the Nevada Independent. We're going to uh, uh, ease into covering campaigns. We're going to cover other issues. Uh, uh, Megan and Riley are going to discover what Southern Nevada looks like uh, <laughs> uh, again. Uh, and so there's a lot more to come. Uh, and we want to hear your suggestions, too, of what you think we should be covering 
uh, after uh, the, the session. That was the easy part for us. Now we're going to do a lot more uh, in-depth pieces. And uh, what other issues have we missed that we should be covering? Uh, but that's all the time we have for this week's Indie Matters podcast. Uh, and if you have any ideas for this podcast or criticism or even praise, you can email us at, at, at ideas at com, or you can go on iTunes and rate us and subscribe on iTunes. You really should. We're not just on iTunes. We're on Google Play. We're on SoundCloud. We're going to be on Stitcher soon. And tune in. That's all according to the greatest podcast producer in the history of Nevada, Joey Lovato, who has made us sound reasonably good in this new echoey Reno podcast home. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you very soon. spinach and artichoke dip you made that once right for the book club mm-hmm. i made it multiple times now for us or just no, like just in general okay. in life sometimes <laughs> i just make it eat it all by myself Tonight's it's very lonely just yeah no yep. chips just a spoon mm-hmm.